Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thank you for listening. Uh, we got a good, uh, interesting episode for you today with author Lily Sparks. Uh, she's been on the show before when we talked about YA stuff. Uh, I think around this time last year, maybe. Um, and that was a, a good episode that is worth listening to. It had my writing partner on it too, who has a book out, who still has a book out. You can pick it up. Um, Stories to Keep You Alive Despite Vampires by Ben Acker. Um, Lily's great. I was excited to have her back and talk about um, wrapping up her Teen Killers trilogy. The third book, Teen Killers at Large, is out now. Uh, and she's got a new book coming out next year called The Merciless King of Moor High, which we talk a little bit about. Also, it's a, a sort of wide-ranging conversation that um, the topic of which Lily had suggested, which was a really interesting one um, that is, you know, writing young adult stuff, writing the world the way it is versus the world the way it should be um, is something that, you know, she as a YA author struggles with. And I think many authors of both young adult fiction and other fiction struggle with. Um, check out all of Lily's books over at Sparks Lily. Dot com. That's her website, sparkslily.com. You can pre-order Merciless King of More High. You can order her other books. Um, and I highly recommend them. Um, before we get into it, I've got like two slots left as of this recording in my TV draft intensive class that starts on October 22nd. Uh, it's on Zoom, so you can be anywhere in the world and take this. They meet uh, Sunday mornings. It's three sessions every other week, and we'll take you from outline to draft. And you're going to get a good draft out of this. Um, it's a really fun class. We treat it like a writer's room. Everyone uh, works together, collaborates on each other's stuff, pitches ideas and fixes. And uh, it, I've been really happy with those classes and have found ways to keep working with everyone who's taken them. Um, I, I tend to get invested in these projects. Uh, if you'd like to take that class, Go over to scriptanatomy.com, click on the class calendar, or just go over to my substack, benblacker.substack.com. All the info is in the past couple of posts. I've put it right at the top of those posts. Uh, that's benblacker.substack.com. While you're there, please consider becoming a paid subscriber. It, um, it really helps. You know, this podcast is work. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm not on a network anymore. It's completely independent. I'm doing it all myself. Um, if the podcast means anything to you at all, uh, or ever has, uh, a nice way to help out is to become a paid subscriber on the Substack, um, benblacker.substack.com. You'll also get access to our monthly Zoom Q&As, which are like writer's panel podcasts where you ask the questions. Um, we just did one with Jenny Klein, uh, which was terrific. We've got Ben Edlund coming up next month and a few others. Uh, we do these every month. They're always great. I always learn something, and I'm always inspired by those. They're about an hour long, um, and you're going to get great stuff from it if you show up and ask questions. So please do that by becoming a paid subscriber. Once again, benblacker.substack.com. I do appreciate it, as I appreciate you listening. Here's my conversation with Lily Sparks. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben. 
We're doing it. This is a podcast. Woo! <laughs> Lily Sparks is back. You were here last time to talk about your YA uh, series. You also have all this other stuff going on. So, so catch me up. Tell me what you are up to these days. How is what is your work life like right now? Um, you know, it's it's kind of liminal, as I think is true for many of us right now. Um, I've, I'm finishing up uh, the start of the next YA series. Uh, which is called The Merciless King of Moor High. It's a little bit of a departure. It's kind of a contemporary um, kids in a fantasy setting. It's a lot, been a lot of fun. Um, the uh, the last book of the Teen Killers Club trilogy is about to come out. Um, I was developing a pitch with that that is, of course, on ice currently. Um, reading a lot of good things, which is always fun. <laughs> getting into a little bit of like art teaching because uh just feel like the kids need to know about creativity. I'm I'm curious to hear about this new series. So Teen Killers was great and and I've talked about it, you know, on the podcast and and on social media and stuff. Um but you know, you've got the third of that trilogy coming out um in October, right? I think which is I think when this podcast will yeah. be out mm-hmm. also. Um, so folks should check out all three books. They're really great. Um, this new series does sound like a departure. And I'm curious where this came from. Is this something you were eager to get to? Like, how long have you been brewing this idea? Or is it is it recent? Um, well, I'm a big, like, tutor nerd. I did a script for Rain and um, always been interested in kind of like that Wolf Hall, Henry VIII uh, Alice intrigue, whispers in the corridors kind of stuff. Uh, and for a long time, it seemed like a very clear parallel to me between like the social dynamics around the cool kids table and the social dynamics of a royal court. You know, it's just seemed like a, a perfectly circular Venn diagram there. Um, so for years, I had this concept of like, oh, like a post-apocalyptic high school where there is like a king and like it's, you know, like a, a jocks as knights kind of kind of retelling um and then that premise didn't really the gravity of what that premise meant didn't really hit me into the lockdowns and then uh confronted with what was possibly like imminent demise <laughs> uh it hit me in a new way and i really built out um merciless king which is like overnight all of the grown-ups morph into these um like corpse dragon monsters and start attacking these two like everyone in the town who is under the age of 18 and these like two high schools barricade themselves in their school and they just both create these completely different societies. So we kind of join them a year later uh, when they're coming into contact for the first time. They have completely different belief systems. They have completely different political systems. And now they have to kind of negotiate with each other in the face of this threat. So it was a really good mental escape during lockdowns. <laughs> that's a really cool concept and it's a great way into this idea that started at like a much different level it sounds like and, and you're yeah. sort of getting into the creating a world but the specifics of it and um that's exciting how did you start to wrap your head around the story like did this present itself as a series does it present as a a one-off novel do you even like talk about that stuff with an editor or publisher at this point you know i think a lot of my ideas just come kind of fully formed and i just kind of watch them for a while 
Um, this one was a very clear visual image of like a torch in a microphone stand um, on a basketball court, like right under the hoop with the smoke coming up. And then just like the student council, like a bedraggled student council, like arguing about how they were going to get food. And like, that was just the first scene and everything kind of built out from there. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it, it definitely came out of like, uh, reading Wolf Hall like too many times. I don't know if you've read Wolf Hall, but I was I was one of those Wolf Hall hoes who just couldn't get enough of that series. Um, and thinking about like what it really meant to like broker power for someone who could kill you at any moment. <laughs> Which is so interesting that like you you immediately attach that to this YA story, to this teenage story. Um and and I suggested we talk about YA stuff and then you zeroed in on a really interesting specific aspect of YA, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I'm curious to hear just about like, is this just the way your brain works? Are you drawn to tell these teenage stories? What is it about those for you? I do think that uh, teen tropes are more telegenic, for sure. Um, someone who has grown up on like my so-called life and, and things of this nature, like your first translation to something you enjoy is through that filter. But also like, um, I think young people are less calcified and they make bad choices more forgivably. So like, we always want our, we always want our heroes to make bad juicy choices. And if they're teens, you can forgive them for those bad choices more. Uh, so there's, there's an element of convenience there. Certainly. Yeah, I love that. Um, and and let's talk too about like how that applies to teen killers and and bringing that series in for a landing. You know, we've gotten to know these characters. We've seen them make mistakes. Um, how do you get them? You know, when you're writing a series like this, how do you how do they keep making mistakes, or is it just a question of new mistakes to make? Well, like I was lucky in that um, you know I came out of like pitching. Like when I first started pitching TV, like the 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 draw the um the accepted wisdom was like have a six season arc in your back pocket. So I approached it as like, all right, what is the whole story? Like what is like soup to nuts? Where does this eventually end? Where does this world end? Where does it resolve? So like I kind of went into it knowing like where the whole world was gonna arc, but then um my characters did keep surprising me. So it's it's just a manner of like, it's like a matter of like braiding um, like the worst possible outcomes into the best possible intentions, you know, like how do I get them to want the right things and how can I make the right things blow up on them as, as painfully as possible? Have you found, so you, you were putting together a pitch for this series and I, and I think you've been doing other TV stuff, you know, the past few years too. Have you found that that, desire for the long form story has changed at all? Well, I know that YA like series are kind of like frowned on right now. I know that um, that's kind of lost. It's a, it's appeal. I, I know that uh, things don't have the same lifespan they used to on TV. Certainly like with, with streaming, like it's, it's more of a hit and run storytelling now. Um, but I don't think it's bad to have that long vision for your world simply because it makes you uh, believe in it more. It makes it, it's better to get a snapshot of a full complete horizon than to just fill in the edges of the snapshot. I think like, even if you're not going to present that whole like 
completed arc, it's good to have it in your back pocket. For sure. Yeah, you can learn so much about that first chapter of it, right? Just by knowing what year six looks like. Yeah. 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 I think that's good advice. Um, all right. Let's, let's talk about this, uh, this is ought question, which is what you suggested to me. Um, and I'm going, can, can I just read what you, what you emailed Please, me and yeah. we'll use that as a jumping off point? Um, cause you put this so perfectly. So the is ought question is, a question about showing the world as it should be versus how it is. If you're doing contemporary YA, you don't want to repeat harmful stereotypes and tropes, nor do you want to let adult cynicism take the wheel. How do you balance the requisite hopefulness of YA against being true to the adversity your characters face and portraying the real world? Why this topic? I mean, I think, I think it's a great one, but, but, you had a list of really interesting aspects of YA and of writing in general. Um, what was it about this that, like, how did you start thinking about this topic? Um, this has been a lot on my mind because uh, Merciless King is like a contemporary setting and it does have like fantasy genre tropes, but it's it's very important to me to ground it in a real world to give everything stakes. And like, so like with Teen Killers Club, I think I discussed this with you before like no one swears right like people just curse under their breath like it's very like like i i it, it really bothers me when characters swear in YA books um but like in merciless king people are effing and jeffing all over the place like i was just like you know what like i have to i can't i can't get away with he, he a stream of invective i have to have them like actually talking the way teenagers talk for people to buy all the fantastical elements and like i have to have them like you know, if they're in a world where all the adults are dead, like they're going to be like smoking pot, there's going to be condom wrappers on the floor. Like I have to be honest, like I have to have a base level of honesty about like how poorly supervised teenagers would like act in these circumstances or else like no one will buy anything because the premise is so fantastical. Right. So like I, it was really hard for me to kind of have that like honesty Um not like, not hard, I'm sorry, not hard for me to have the honesty, but it was like, it was like a, it was like a hard limit of like, I'm going to be honest about this. They're going to talk the way teenagers talk. They're going to do the things teenagers do. Even if it makes me uncomfortable to drop these F-bombs, we're doing it. They're just, they're just going to do it. Um, And they did and they do. And it's like grittier than my uh, lighthearted series about teen assassins. <laughs> it's a lot darker because of that. Um, so wait, so, so let me stop you there and, and ask, first of all, like, where are you getting your baseline? You know, like, I think we sort of have an understanding. We've all been teenagers, so we have an understanding about sort of the timeless aspects of being a teenager, but this is, as you say, a contemporary story too, which, so you need to balance that aspect of it. How are you doing your research? What are you inventing? How are you finding that? I mean, like, especially during lockdowns, it's like such a pastiche, right? Like, um, I'm obviously not fully like Drew Barrymore going back to school, uh, never been kissed style. Um, I do eavesdrop quite a bit on my nieces and nephews. Uh, I go down rabbit holes in TikTok. Um, I have my own high school. I feel like having been a high schooler in like, the 90s slash aughts things were perhaps a little harsher then like I feel like we didn't have the same sensitivity to language that kids do now so like 
I'm very, I try to be cognizant of that. I do have like sensitivity readers. I try to rely on people who just know things that I don't know. Um, but I do just kind of keep an ear to the ground for the way young people actually talk who are physically around me. <laughs> like I'm just, I eavesdrop quite a bit. So that's, that's part of it. Just creeping, straight creeping. <laughs> Absolutely makes sense. No one blames you for it. Um, the the idea of you know sensitivity around teenage life right it's not even about issues it's about like what what do their days look like um in you know a world in which teenagers are not necessarily the most sensitive i think you're right contemporary teenagers certainly are more so than they were 20 25 years ago right we there's a language to you know, dealing with race and sexuality and drugs and everything, which we didn't have. That said, teenagers are not always the most self-aware or thoughtful, right? So how do you start to let them make those mistakes? Let your character, your teen characters make those mistakes while still being sensitive to the readers, right? Right. Um, well, for example, here's like kind of a nuanced example. I have like this one character who's like, he's like a baseball player and he's like very sensitive, but he's kind of like, um, he's more like a bro, right? And in one scene, like he, something happens where he's trying not to cry and he like turns and kind of like punches a chair and like sucks it up and then goes back into what he's saying. And like, I have a very specific person in mind for that, right? Like I have like a kernel for that character. And my sensitivity reader was like, well, why, why is he displaying this kind of toxic masculinity? Like, why is he, why can't he just like cry freely? And I'm like, I, I, I could tell you why. And like, I know why he can't cry freely. And I'm not saying that I approve that he can't cry freely, but I know this character can't cry freely. And if I make him cry in this scene, he just becomes flattened. Like it flattens him a little bit. Like I have to kind of allow him the space to have the wrong impulses or else as a character, he he's less complex. He's incoherent. Um, so that's like, that's like one small example of like in a perfect world, this character would just openly weep and everyone would hug him and he'd get through it, but it's not a perfect world. Right. So like it's that, but like over such a spectrum of like all of these different topics we've just touched on. It's like that, like for everything. And like, I have to kind of, walk this line of like, well, in a perfect world, it would be this way. But in a world that my readers actually live in, what would it be? And like, where do you, where do you parse, like, what is authentic versus what is like reinforcing something horrible? Sure. And it's, it's interesting too, that like, you know, you're, you're touching on something that, that I've gotten notes about in writing, especially young characters. And I think the, desire from a lot of editors or execs, those kinds of folks who you get notes from is, okay, so you know, you've done the character work. You know why this character is not going to let it out and cry, and then we're all going to accept him. They want to know all of that information up front, right? They want you to tell everything. Now, I think we don't always want to tell everything. So how do you have that conversation and how do you find that balance in the writing too? Um, well, yeah, the margin notes, the margin notes of my manuscripts, like they, they get bigger revisions than I think the actual manuscript does sometimes. Cause I'll like, I'll put all the work, I'll like 
I'll like do paragraphs of like, well, here's why and blah, 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 blah. And his father, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'll like psychoanalyze the character and then I'll pull back and I'll be like, well, what's the note behind the note here? Like, what are they, <laughs> what are they saying? And sometimes I just refine that to like, for him to arc to this, he has to start at this. And for him to accept this thing, he has to deny this thing. And like, you know, just, just, and sometimes I'll, if I know the editor well enough, I'll just be like, trust me, it'll all work out. <laughs> like, trust me on this one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very hard because they do kind of want, when you, especially if you're working on like a long form series, they kind of want to know all the answers up front. And it's like, it won't be a surprise if I tell you, I have to, yeah. <laughs> have to, I have to keep some of my cards close to my chest. And then other times they have perfectly valid reasons for wanting to see all your cards. And then it becomes a question of, well, what do you put in the book at this point? Like, what is a reader going to find frustrating versus intriguing? Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it too, right? Like how much, how much can you tell without giving away the farm? Because um, you don't want to frustrate your readers, right? You want to give them enough information so that they feel comfortable knowing that you are a writer in control. Um, was this something that this idea, something that you had to learn as you matured as a writer? Like where, what were, what were early versions of you giving too much or too little information? Um, well, like I, I, my background is like in comedy. Like I, I, I came from like a, almost a sketch comedy background and like, um, with comedy, it's all about subverting expectations. So like you, you just want to constantly like surprise people and surprise people. And then when I got more into dramatic writing and stuff where the plot started getting very like complicated and emotional and like, you know, hot trigger topics come in in a serious way, like, you know, sexual abuse or whatever. And like, you have to be more considered and like surprise is not necessarily on your side here. Um, I, don't, I, I think I just, I had to, Honestly, I've had, I, I think it's just the process of growing older makes you meet more and more people who've had like terrible things happen to them. And then actually having to process like their trauma, just you picture them reading something and then you find yourself kind of talking to them. So like, as I've gotten older and known more people and uh, kind of seen what they've been through, I become a little more considered. Um, and I, I don't know if that's, from any any positive points in my personality or, or just that's the uh, one of the small the few perks of getting older is you meet more people and hear more terrible things is there stuff in your writing that you shy away from because you're not sure that you can write it for young people or that you have in the past and then learned to do. Okay, so the original ending for Teen Killers Club was a lot sadder. <laughs> yeah, there was like, um, when I sent like the first draft to my agent, she basically got back to me and was like, are you okay? <laughs> and she was like, how are you feeling? What's happening? I want you to like read this and consider, <laughs> consider this again. It was just extremely sad. And you know, I was, I was, to me, I was like, that's life, kids. That's life. <laughs> but then I was like, okay, wait a minute. You know, like we've all, we've all just been through enough. Like we felt like I was writing it in like 2021, like 2021. And like, I'm like, you know what? We've all, we, we all know how the real world works. That's not what people are coming to fiction for. Like we're coming, we're here for a good time, not for a long time. Like let's, 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 let's send them home with a smile on their faces. So then I like kind of went back in and 
uh, reconsidered some of the points that were like uh, devastating. And I'm so glad I did because it was it was bumming me out, too. But like, I think that is where I have to be vigilant is that like this thirst for authenticity can sometimes just turn into me telling on myself about my depression. (laughs) That's fair. I mean, it's it's it comes back to this question, right? Do we show the world as it is or as we see it or even as we see it in that moment? Right. You're writing this in 2021 and like that was a rough time. Um, so tell me about going back in and and rewriting this ending. Like, what did that process even look like for you? How did you know where to start picking it apart? Um, well, like the world, the world kind of resolves in one way, like in kind of a messy way. And the personal relationships used to kind of reflect that, like the personal relationships were also kind of like cast asunder and people drifting apart. And then um, I kind of sat with it and I was like, well, I'm trying to show that like this, uh, this like algorithm that's profiling people has like wreaked um, irreversible damage on society. And I'm sticking to my guns on that one. <laughs> but uh I can still make it like emotionally satisfying for the characters who were attached to. And I owe that to the audience at this point to like have them. They've invested so much in these characters. I, I, I owe these characters a happy ending and I owe the audience following them a happy ending. So like, I was like, I will make the personal side of things as satisfying as possible and as hopeful and upbeat as possible, but I will let the world be as dark as it, as I need it to be, to feel like I'm, I'm not sugarcoating uh, the landing. And I feel like that's I feel like that's a pretty good compromise is like uh, the circumstances get dark and, and stay dark and probably always be dark, but you can exist within them with the right set of people. That's it's so funny to me that like you had to go through the other version, though, before you could <laughs> do that version, which absolutely makes sense. Like, right. You're steering towards the thing. But as you describe the version you wound up with. It feels so in line with the tone of the book, you know, like this is as dark as that book can be. It's often very funny. And like, there are these great character moments in it. Um, was there sort of a, a tonal watchword for at least those first couple books for you before you decided to get real dark? Well, like I, I had a, I had a hard time placing it because everyone who read, like every major publisher who read it was like, this is too dark we need to, we need to squish it into something happier. And then after squid games, people kind of calmed down about that. Um, and like on the TV side of things, I've never gotten anything but enthusiastic responses, but like, I feel like book world thinks a lot more about like being placed in children's libraries and like young adult libraries. And so they're a little more geared to this, like this ethos of like, don't leave the kids hopeless and like have some lightness and, 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 and the first book is like a cliffhanger. So it's not hopeful or dark in the ending. It's like, oh, it's a cliffhanger. And the second book is like also like a cliffhanger. So like I could kind of postpone the idea of like, how dark is this series getting until until the finale? So I could kick the can down the road. <laughs> and then when my re- big reveal was like, yeah, everyone's heart's broken and everyone's super sad. Then like, yeah, my agent had to just kind of like walk me back and be like, well, um, <laughs> how are you? look inward. How are you feeling? Take a walk. Like what's going on? And I'm, I'm so glad she did because, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would have been fair to the audience to uh, put them through that. Yeah. I, and I think in, you know, we're, we're so often told to write the story we want 
to read or the story we want to see. Um, and But I think in YA especially, you do have to be pretty aware of that audience and what kind of a message you're sending. How how As you enter into this new series, how much is that at the forefront of your mind? Well, you know, I, I always feel smart until until I get my like first set of notes back, right? Um, <laughs> something that's really informed this time around is like talking to uh, friends who are parents of teenagers and the kind of panopticon that teenagers live in now, where like if they're late for class, their parents get a text. When they get a test result, their parents get a text. When they, they're just constantly like observed. And like I... I came from a high school experience where you could skip first period and you could uh, get away, get away with like fudging things and having like a lot more privacy and agency. And so when I'm like, when I went into Merciless King, like a big, um, a big thing that kind of kicked it off was realizing that all these kids were going to go to college on zoom, right? Like that all these kids were starting their first year of college on zoom. And like, I don't know about you, but, going off to school was like really critical for me, forming my identity, forming um, a self-concept for like getting my agency as an adult. It was like, I went from Connecticut to California and I just got to kind of reorder like my priorities. And it was hugely important. And like, I felt like a tremendous sense of grief for all these like young people who were going to be at a computer in their high school bedrooms meeting people at college their first year, I was like, this is like a trap and like a lot of tragedy was happening, but I'm like, this is a tragedy that I think we may might overlook because so much tragedy is happening, but this is like a tragedy. Like this is extremely like claustrophobic and limiting. So um, going into writing it, like I was trying to think like, how do I address like these circumstances that are so, claustrophobic but make it an expansive world that is a relief from that like how do I reflect the feeling of you are constrained you are watched you are you are constantly like at a remove from people but then try to bring in all the wish fulfillment aspects of you're you're with your friends all the time you're in your own world like no adults allowed no cell phones no screens so like that was really important to marry to marry like the way things are with the way things the reader would want them to be, presumably agency, especially like in, in writing that first draft, that second draft, like it must be a constant discovery process for you about what this world looks like and what these kids want. Cause they're not a monolith either. Yeah, that's very true. You had also brought up um, in, in when we were emailing, and I think it goes hand in hand in this, uh, the spice discourse. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think is great. And this idea of sex in YA. And I mean, again, you have these in, in this series, you have these kids who are left to their own devices. Um, and nature finds a way. You know, tell me about this. I, this must be a conversation going on in, you know, YA circles uh, about what what is allowed what isn't allowed what is real what is too much what is not enough what where are you where do you fall in all of this and and what are the conversations that you've heard like complicating this issue is like the whole idea of like banning books um i think like there was a huge issue in the texas legislature with like 
books were going to be rated as like sexually explicit, like sexually relevant or like, and they didn't really have any hard and fast guidelines. So it was like, well, is like referencing a, a sexy scene, something is like an ACOTAR style, like full on sex scene, sexually relevant. Like what do these terms mean? And like, it's hard to ignore the commercial success of stuff that is very explicit, like the ACOTAR series you know, it's, it's the A Court of Thrones and Roses. It's like the, the fairy sex series is like through the roof and like people obviously love it and they connect with the characters and they love the spiciness. It's, it's a, it's a balancing act of like, again, like what's, what's the honest way that like teens would act, but like, to be honest, like a lot of teens are not leaping into bed with each other at this point in time. And to like portray like sex sex as something that is not like fraught, complicated, awkward, often negative at that age is also like unfair. There are a lot of successful series that are very explicit sexually. Um, but I don't know that sex really improves a YA series. And I think it actually can be quite off-putting to a lot of your readers. So if if you do address like in your books like I feel like it's really good to know exactly why and I think I feel like in Teen Killers Club like my impetus whenever I address sexual stuff was I was like I'm going to talk about consent like there's going to be a hidden dialogue about consent here and I want to tell like you know my daughter or like a younger female reader like here are some red lines about consent in like the most entertaining way possible and so that was like a good benchmark for me where I'm like if this is not in some way addressing consent, I don't know if it needs to be there. And uh, I don't know. I don't want to limit other authors, but I I do feel like that compl- that conversation is a lot more complicated for like queer stories, for queer authors. Um, they have a lot more to like contend with, a lot more to deal with. And like, I don't want to censor anyone, but I also feel like the pressure to be sexier uh, for YA um, it's like a double-edged sword. Is there a pressure right now? Like, is this something that either publishers or editors or agents are are pushing because of the success of other books? Well, I think it's just a, it's like truly a double-edged sword where on the one hand, you have books being like outright banned for having like too spicy of a content. And like you you have the risk of maybe your book like won't be sold like if it violates some kind of like unwritten code for these larger book markets and then at the same time you have like series that really take off that have like spicy content so like there's this kind of like there's this like you can see both like both perspectives of I can see authors who are going down the spicy track and they're like great you know spice spice puts butts in seats and then you can see the other track where it's like I don't want to I don't I'm not a sex focused series. I don't want to have anything that will get me like burnt in these other areas. So I'm going to all of a sudden what be as conservative as possible. Like, well, that's not, that's not necessarily the track you want to take either. So it's like a damned if you do damned if you don't scenario. Do And I, you may not know the answer to this question, but you certainly have more experience than I do, but like, does YA publishing tend to chase trends in the way that we see a lot of like TV sales chasing trends over and over again and always too late (laughs) that's just the thing you really can't hit a moving target right like i i definitely see like there's this need to like have a comp title right and uh 
you're certainly benefited if you can compare your work to something that's been previously successful, much like in TV. And uh, it doesn't hurt to be like a to be to have a comp title that's like highly commercial and you you always need comp titles so it's like there's certainly the lean towards trends but then the actual production schedule for books is so much longer it's like so involved you just have to kind of trust that there are editors out there with conviction and that's like that's also the thing is that like the tv like there's enough money to pull in executives who are not necessarily creatively motivated. Like, <laughs> like uh, you could very well do it, do a TV job, a creative executive job for the money. Not, not that people do, but you certainly could. Whereas like editors, especially at smaller publishing houses are like passionate, passionate, passionate about their work. And like, they are less likely to be chasing trends simply because like, they spend 40 hours of their week in one story, just loving it. And like, so that's, that's a great audience to, to write for um, as a writer to have like, you know, as a creative collaborator, someone who's doing it purely for the love of it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And that's, that's nice to hear, honestly. And, and yeah, has been my, even in my limited experience, I've found that to be true. Um, I want to wrap up just by asking like, Tell me about your, we started off by talking about your workload and yes, some of it is off your plate right now because of the strike, but are you able to juggle multiple projects? This is a pure process question, but how do you, how do you do that? Um, I've, I am one of those people who wake up early when I have to, like, um, I was doing character design, um, for a series and that work day was like 10 to seven. It was very intense. It was like, uh, every every minute of those hours and at that time I had like two book deadlines and an audio project deadline and I just found myself waking up at five and like working until nine nine to ten I would check in with my family and then I would check with my family again from like seven to nine and then from like nine to eleven I would keep writing so like I I'm just someone who like I'm just a word goblin <laughs> I want to sit down and just like write all day that doesn't bother me but I could certainly see it bothering anybody else. <laughs> and uh, I was very fortunate to get like COVID right before I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I got, I had a deadline and then I got COVID like right before it was due. So I got to really just focus in on a, on one project. So that was great. Um, getting COVID has been a real boon to my deadline. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is not healthy. <laughs> this is not the way. It's not the way. You should be it's going about things. <laughs> My God. Um, where are you in the process for this uh, next I'm book, about to turn way? in copy edits. And, and then I will have a lot more free time and not a great idea of what to do with it. So maybe I'll go to the beach. <laughs> maybe you'll get COVID again and all your problems will be solved. Maybe I'll get COVID. Um, well, we look forward to that one, which I assume will, will be next year. Um, and in the meantime, folks should check out the last uh, book in the Team Killers Club trilogy and check out the first two if you haven't already. Um, we'll end as we always do by asking you, what what are you putting into your brain these days? Are, do you have time to watch things, to read things, to listen to things? What's getting you excited or inspired? Um, I've been reading uh, Lone Women 
uh, recently for a book club. I read the review of that. It's supposed to be fantastic. It's so good. It's so good that it's actually like changed the way I write. Like my sentences are shorter now. I feel like it's given me permission to be more succinct. Like it's just so good. It's so good. It's uh, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to spoil anything because the twist really completely took me off guard. But just strap in and read it. It's such a treat. So good. Yes, I'm excited to read that. Um, Thank you so much for chatting today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. This is a a treat.